The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. When the AI really works, when it solves something for you, when it makes some of your ideas better, your when it helps you ideate as a second partner, you're not worried about the dollar of cost from a really great novel idea. That was Constantine Bueller, a partner at venture firm Sequoia Capital, talking to me about how businesses are approaching artificial intelligence technology. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals across the world. I'm Anita Ramaswamy, columnist at Reuters Breaking Views. Constantine Bueller is an investor at Sequoia focused on seed and early stage businesses, particularly in AI and cloud software. AI has been one of the rare bright spots for funding going to startups in the past year. So in this episode, I caught up with Constantine about how businesses and people are using, developing, and attempting to define the technology, which itself can be a surprisingly difficult task. Hey, Constantine, it's great to have you on the podcast today, and I'm really excited to chat about AI. Oh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. And likewise. Yeah. So last time we were chatting, um, you know, we had a lot of common ground in terms of really interesting views on AI and the future of the space. And I do want to get into all of that. But given that you're investing at Sequoia, I would love to start um, by just having you kind of run me through how Sequoia looks at AI investments and how that might be different from other VCs or investors in the space. Sure. Um, Well, Anita, Sequoia has been looking at the AI trend for decades. And we view this, yes, as a really exciting time, especially with GPTs and the revolution of large language models, but also a point in time in a much broader revolution of AI. We first partnered in the AI space with one of the most important companies in that category, NVIDIA, about 30 years ago, so back in 1993. And we've seen the maturation of the space with a critical moment in time being about a decade ago when the AlexNet algorithm uh, came online and deep learning really started to show its power at the time on images. So for the past decade, we have, uh, since AlexNet, monitored the trend super closely and made a significant number of investments every single year. Now, once ChatGPT came out, which was about 13 months ago at this recording, 14 months ago at this recording, Feels like yesterday. Feels like yesterday, but once it came out, that was that was a big moment for AI, less because of the amazing technology, which it was amazing, but even less so because of that and more so because AI all of a sudden became front of mind of hundreds of millions of people around the world, and that created a mindshare opportunity. Yeah, it's it's been a pretty wild um you know, past couple of months and really fast moving year, but you were involved in AI a little bit before that. And I know that you personally studied AI and went to school for it. Do you mind just sharing a little more about your background and sort of why you chose to go into the field? Absolutely. So you're, you're right. I actually first learned about AI um, over a decade ago. Um, I was a student at Stanford and I was actually a freshman at Stanford. This was about 13 years ago now, and I was on a late night run with one of my smartest friends who now is an AI convex optimization engineer. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Chicago. I did not grow up around a lot of computer science or AI. I learned how to program when I was 
in fifth grade, made my first website then, but wasn't really in the Silicon Valley mix. Right, right. Until I came to Stanford and met all these great engineers like this friend, Stephen. And he, freshman year, one and a half months in, we're on a run and he explains, we're talking about algorithms for prediction. I mean, think linear and logistic regressions type stuff and uh, support vector machines and all of these classical AI algorithms. And he starts to tell me about the perceptron and this concept that a series of sigmoid activation functions, so a series of what we now call neurons, might oh, be okay. able to work together. Yes, it might be able to work together in a way that creates uh, a lot more advanced algorithms. He told me about this book called On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. And I ended up going home over that holiday vacation. We're talking now right before the holidays. So this was same weather here in, in the Bay Area. And I remember reading On Intelligence, which basically plays out this idea that a very simple algorithm done in massive scale could actually capture all sorts of intelligence. And that captivated me, Anita. So the next five years at Stanford, because I ended up doing a graduate degree as, as well, I focused on stochastic modeling. I focused on natural language processing, and I really got to cut my teeth in the AI engineering. So one thing I think is really interesting, Constantine, about your perspective is that you wrote this blog about how what we think of as AI is going to change again and again and sort of the linguistics around defining AI. And as this whole discourse plays out, I mean, you know, I, I feel like I've had moments of being like, OK, what actually counts as AI? How is how are those definitions changing and how we talk about them? So. You know, if you were in the perspective of, let's say, a corporate executive um, or just an average person, how would you begin to think about how to define AI as a category? So, Anita, I'm really glad you brought this up. And I think the reason why I've had uh, the opportunity to think about this more is because I have been in the industry for, you know, of AI almost from the beginning of this new era of deep learning. AlexNet, I think, came out in 2012. I really got into actually from before AlexNet. So 2010 is when I started to get into the field and AlexNet really picked up. So from before this wave, and because of that, I've seen a pattern emerge where there's a breakthrough. It achieves what we consider AI. And then after some period of time, even a year or two, it's no longer considered AI. And what I realized- That's interesting. Yeah, unfortunately, this is a pattern with artificial intelligence. Uh, I'll give a couple examples. Yeah. Um, the, the problem with the term artificial intelligence is the word intelligence. Artificial, we're all comfortable with. But humans have kind of changed what they consider intelligent over time. Uh, there's a quote from the 1600s where Pascal talks about a dreamy future where a machine can add, subtract, multiply, and divide. And he uses the word intelligent, roughly, like to describe... Like a four-function calculator. Exactly, like a four-function calculator. And frankly, Pascal's a brilliant mathematician. It makes sense that at the era, if something could do the four functions of calculation, that would be intelligence. And yet now, no one would ever consider that intelligence. Or I, I, don't, I don't think anyone right. I know would consider a four-function calculator an artificial intelligence, even though it does something that's intelligent by human measures artificially. Um, same thing happened with the Google revolution, where before Google, Yahoo was 
uh, a very hierarchical structure for organizing the world's information. Google came in with the PageRank algorithm, which very intelligently was able to organize the world's information. The founders of Google have described that as, as intelligence, and I view that as an, a form of artificial intelligence. I don't think anyone really today sees search as such. I was going to tell you 40 years ago, Anita, that uh, in, you know, when our parents were navigating cars uh, with maps, that in the future there would be a device that could navigate them from San Francisco to New York with exceptional accuracy. Uh, they probably would consider that a form of intelligence. Now that's just Google Maps, and it's right. actually exceptionally good. And this became very real to me around the era of AlexNet, when we finally were able to have neural networks that could identify what was in an image. These were things like, what type of animal is, this in, is in this image? Is it a snail? Is it a cat? That was actually very advanced for an artificial intelligence just 10 years ago. Now we've already gone past that, and it's considered uh, just computer vision. It's considered super basic. This is what we call the frontier paradox, which is the frontier is constantly taken for granted. And as soon as that type of intelligence is achieved by a machine, within a couple of years, we move beyond it, and it's no longer intelligence. It's just a form of machines doing work. Yeah, I've seen this I, probably three times just in this period uh, in, in my career of AI. I do think it's really interesting how much the definition has shifted, but also there, to me, it, it seems like there has to be something different this time around, right? Like for the first time, at least in my lifetime, you're seeing some really widespread mainstream excitement and enthusiasm around the technology, which is interesting because it's existed for a while. And also the definition in the frontier is always changing. What do you think is different this time around and why has it taken, you know, on such a, a mainstream audience for the first time? So uh, the difference this time around is the fact that it has become mainstream, Anita. And it is the fact that it can be so immediately relevant to so many people. I, I liken this a little bit to the personal computer revolution. So if you think about the personal computer revolution, it started with a terminal. Just imagine that blinking cursor, black screen, green text that engineers put command line into, and they're able to access all of the functionality of a computer. But computers never really took off until the graphical user interface, the GUI, was invented. And when the GUI was invented, anybody could just drag their mouse, point, and click. And that was the breakthrough that allowed the world to use personal computers. So just like AI has been around and only accessible to AI engineers, personal computers were around, but only accessible to those who knew the language of computing. Once the GUI was invented, once textual AI was invented so that you could chat, that's the breakthrough that makes it mass market so anybody can interface with the AI. That's what's different. Got it. And I'm curious to know from your perspective, in this mainstream discourse about AI, what are maybe some misconceptions that people have or even some narrative violations about AI as a technology? Um, I think oh, there's a few. I think there's quite a few narrative yeah, violations, yeah. Anita. I think one piece of this is 
I think a lot of people still see AI as magic. I don't think that will last for long. I think eventually people will take it what we have Like a four-function calculator. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. I've already seen this happen. I see this with really close friends where they were blown away by ChatGPT. And I see the cohorts of people that actually use it moving from, oh my gosh, this is an incredible novelty that uh, does magic to, hey, this is a second set of eyes when I write something. And it's really functional. I've seen people describe it as artificial intelligence that does magic. I already see them describe it as an assistant or a proofreader, which is slightly different. It's, it's a different way of looking at the technology. Right. Interestingly, though, that transition is, is in parallel to it being more useful. We go from it being a novelty, from it being a magic toy, to it being just something we use in our day-to-day. Like we pick up a calculator, like we pick up our iPhones. And we say, wow, this is amazing. That is probably the biggest narrative violation that as artificial intelligence becomes more mainstream, it will also disappear from our immediate consciousness. When you're kind of talking to founders and looking at all these different startups, how do you go about separating the companies that are just saying, you know, we're using AI and that's why you should invest in us versus the ones that are, you know, using it in a, in a way that has future promise or potential. Um, Anita, that has been a big part of, of investing for me for the past, you know, since I came into the career was how do I twofold, first of all, understand both the deep technology of AI companies. And then secondly, try to understand the actual business in part. This was because, my uh, technical friends would go work at these super smart AI companies that might not have an immediate business model. And many of them uh, did not turn into great successes. And then my non-technical friends wanted to work at AI and uh, they didn't necessarily find a company that was actually doing cutting edge or breakthrough technology. And so In fact, I, I view- it was mostly labs and you know, the academic community. I think on the technical side, it was mostly labs. And then on the non-technical side, it's actually a lot of, candidly, there's a lot of marketing. There still is a lot of marketing. Hey, we use AI, but how much AI are you using? How much of a mode is it? Is this really a wrapper around algorithms that are uh, available to anyone as opposed to really deep moats for you actually building a big business? Right. Those are the types of questions that I ask when I meet a company. Uh, Technically, I try to understand the deep insights into the way that they're going to be able to push algorithms forward. There's specific AI algorithms. Uh, Also, the integrations that they do, it's not just the AI algorithm. It's also how they integrate data sources. It's how they integrate outputs and interactions with with the end user. It's also, it's not just the fundamentals of the actual algorithm itself. It's how Uh, Other algorithms will consume data that you feed it. And then on the business side, it's about first principle thinking, which is instead of reasoning by analogy, hey, we do X with AI, it's, hey, we do X for this customer. It is incredibly valuable. They have this pain point. And by the way, it happens to use AI as a major cost advantage or happens to use AI as a major speed advantage or happens to use AI as a major accuracy advantage. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of, you know, discussion about how AI can help or 
you know, harm, but also help the consumer in particular. And I'm curious about the enterprise use cases, you know, like how are businesses actually using AI today and how do you see them using it in the future? Are there any interesting examples you can think of? Oh, I, uh, it's, but I'm trying to think where to start because it really is. Yeah, yeah, it's a broad I'll, question, I'll, I know. I'll give a few examples. I actually think that the companies that have been using AI the longest and benefited from it significantly are actually the big tech companies. Uh, right. They've actually seen the benefits of AI a decade plus ago. Uh, I forget the exact timing, but the DeepMind acquisition, there were a lot of questions about it when that occurred, when Google purchased DeepMind. And then there was a press release about how DeepMind was used to optimize costs in data centers and how it paid for itself as an acquisition. That's an amazing early example in AI about how this specific type of AI, deep learning, was able to pay for itself in a very large tech company. Um, now let's go to kind of mid-sized tech companies and, and what they're doing for AI. Yeah. We have a portfolio company called Kumo.ai. And what they do is they implement graph neural networks that take all of your data warehouse, all of your tabular data, which is some of the most important data you have in the entire company. And they make sense of it in a single graph. So a structure, a data structure that allows them to make predictions uh, many times on a single data structure. And they run this graphical neural network over this tabular data in a way that lets you not just understand the past, but the future of your business metrics. So I'll make it very tangible. One of our portfolio companies, one of our large portfolio companies, yeah. uses Kumo to look at the historical interactions with their customers. And instead of predicting, hey, what will this customer do today? They predict, what will this customer do tomorrow? And by predicting what will this customer do tomorrow, they're able to actually anticipate those needs, send a notification, ask them if they wanna make this certain action within the app and have an experience that quite literally anticipates the needs of the user. So that's what a large company is doing. And I'll move down to a couple examples with, uh, with smaller companies, also yeah. in the infrastructure layer. Um, we've seen a lot of companies that, are, that have realized, hey, we want to give the power of artificial intelligence to our end users. But we don't know exactly how the models are going to evolve. We don't know exactly how uh, the, there's going to be a progression of open source models versus closed source models. We're not even really sure that this model will work well for this problem. And so we, we have a portfolio company called Dust that works with, uh, works with mid-sized companies primarily like Allen in order, to, in order to take all of your enterprise data and allow that to be understood. So you're able to query across your Notion and your Drive and your Slack and understand, let's say every week, what the product updates are. Let's say for a given engineer, you're writing engineering reviews. You want to see what, what the changes that have actually been made to the repository are in GitHub over the past few months, a summarization of that engineer's progress. So this is a very flexible tool where people are, are able to make custom assistance. And because of that flexibility, it's a solution for enterprises that just want to have their end customer be able to use AI. I'll give a couple more examples. Yeah. Uh, one example is of a company that actually took AI 
uh, and didn't initially have it baked into their product, but pulled it in and have it as a great offering to their, to their customers now. And that company is called Ironclad. Ironclad is a leading contract management solution. So it's for lawyers, it's for corporate legal teams uh, that manage a ton of contracts. The contracts are writing. There's a ton of writing. What Ironclad is able to do is they're able to actually, with LLMs, understand what's in those contracts, summarize what's in those contracts, and actually help lawyers outperform by having a complete knowledge of all the contracts in a, in a legal system, a corporate's legal system. Wow. And we've seen that actually accelerate not just the happiness of their customers, but the entire business. So those are examples of how megatech companies have used it for a decade, how big companies are using it right now, and how even our mid-sized startups are, uh, are integrating it into their products to further accelerate and delight customers. I could give a dozen more examples, but we've got limited time. No, totally. And clearly there are so many use cases and ways that businesses are finding AI valuable. But my question sort of on the flip side of this for the startups and for the companies working on AI technology or even using AI models to then build products on top of, what are the business models that are most conducive to monetization? Because, you know, running the models is so costly and expensive because of cloud computing and the resource needs. And so what I wonder is, you know, for now, maybe that's sort of being subsidized in a way by investors, by venture backers, by big tech companies. But once those LLM providers actually start charging the full cost to the customer, wouldn't that make business models less viable across the entire space? Hmm. So um, the answer is it depends. I don't actually, I don't think that there's a single cost structure across all LLMs, Anita. Yeah. And there's the reason why it particularly depends is even if the cost structure is really high for an LLM today, and we're anticipating they might pass through more costs, costs in a year to the end user, the costs, the underlying costs of the LLMs are going to be less and less and less as we become more efficient with these algorithms. So let's say they would have to increase the price 5x. I yeah. actually could see a world where the price decreases 5x. And so the price to the user actually is, is, is kept flat. That's what why will be really the drivers does. you think of the, the cost decreases. Okay. So there's a lot, uh, there's GPU utilization. That's an obvious one. Yeah. Um, there's, orchestration across GPUs, you know, to, to increase that utilization. Uh, there's improvements on the inference side with GPUs and maybe even CPUs. Um, there are maybe the biggest, my guess is the business, biggest, uh, more efficient models that are either distilled for specific use cases. And the term distilled is a technical term for taking a large model and teaching a smaller model. Uh, about a, a smaller set of, uh, of the world. Um, and that makes it much more efficient to run. Uh, those are three ways in which we could see the world significantly decrease the price of an LLM. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people waiting for those costs to come down. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about what you think about the cost and the challenges for enterprises looking to incorporate AI you know, I, I've heard a lot of talk about GPUs and the competition to get them. Just sort of where are we at in terms of the largest challenges on the cost side? And, um, you know, do you see those getting resolved anytime soon? 
Um, I think there's been amazing progress. You know, we were we were just at NVIDIA with our, our founder, Jensen Huang, um, two, just a couple days ago. So we were there Thursday of last week. And the amount of progress that that company has, has made and the amount of thought leadership and ecosystem leadership is truly remarkable. I have immense confidence that they're going to continue to produce amazing GPUs and frankly, supercomputers. And so that's going to be at the foundational level. We're going to continue to have great progress because of companies like NVIDIA. And then um, in terms of cost improvements, we already see that with, with the progress in small language models. That's related to what I was just talking about with distilled models. So models that are made for more specific use cases. I see a world where you actually have kind of like a router uh, where where queries are actually routed to the most cost-efficient model. In fact, we, we already see that where you have more model options available in OpenAI settings. Um, so this world's already playing out, Anita. I actually think that the big constraint is not cost. It's human creativity and new ways to use LLMs. I think that will actually be the constraint, not the cost constraint. Think about how much... When the yeah, when the when the AI really works, when it solves something for you, when it makes some of your ideas better, or when it helps you ideate as a second partner, you're not worried about the dollar of cost from a really great novel idea where you're ideating sure. with with a, with a partner. But uh, the constraint really is the number of creative ways that people are going to be able to continue to use LLMs. And that's what I'm very excited to continue to see. Where do you think startups fit into that um, picture in terms of where they can add the most value? Do you think it's sort of in terms of finding new creative use cases or maybe developing the infrastructure or something else? I think it's primarily in new creative use cases because that's where startups generally excel. Incumbents are really good at knowing, hey, this is the big direction the world's going. And startups are really good at saying, hey, I actually have noticed this unique behavior. And I've been creative and we're going to take this risk, go in a slightly different direction. That lends itself to creative new use cases. I have a question about a challenge that I think many startups are currently facing and other AI startups will face in the future, which is the risks around copyright and you know, data ownership and data privacy. I know that, you know, some of these LLM providers have come out and said that if they misuse data, they'll pay any legal fees for their clients who are using their models. But what are the risks for just, let's say a non-AI company, just a regular tech company that's using AI, how should they be thinking through the, these sorts of risks in terms of copyright, um, data ownership, et cetera? So uh, this is not my area of expertise. Um, this is actually, interestingly, it's, it's an area of expertise of my sister, uh, who is a lawyer nice. and she's the general counsel at G2 and a, a leading legal mind in artificial intelligence. And I'll actually give a, a story that she told me recently because I asked her for this question. Her name's Eunice Bueller. She's, um, a, f a fabulous lawyer. Awesome. And she told me, um, she told me a story that, that, uh, really, really got me thinking. So uh, my sister recently asked her about this and she recently told me the story of Naruto the monkey. Have you heard this story? I have not. That sounds pretty wild. Yeah. Please so enlighten me. 
it's pretty wild. And you know, she's she's the legal expert that I lean on everything for. So again, I'm yeah. technical AI applications, startups, a little bit out of my territory here, but relying on her expertise. She told me the story about Naruto the monkey, which was the the monkey that a photographer named David Slater had to take a series of selfies. So this photographer gave Naruto the monkey a camera and the monkey ended up using the camera to take selfies. And then David Slater, the photographer, said that he wanted to copyright those photographs because you'll look them up. They're actually really kind of fun, creative, wildlife photography where a monkey is taking a photo of itself. So he goes to submit those copyrights in, I think it was 2011. So actually kind of concurrent with the AlexNet beginning of the deep learning era. And PETA actually files a claim against him, basically uh, objects to the copyright. So PETA says, you can't copyright that. You didn't take those photos. The monkey, the monkey monkey (laughs) took those photos. That's exactly right. So that was, that was food for thought for me because I, I generally want more innovation. And I generally think that enabling copyright on top of, uh, on top of the work of LLMs and AI is a really good idea to enable more innovation. And at the Mm -hmm. same time, the Naruto, the monkey case does open up, I think a whole a branch of legal questions around what can you copyright and what makes it truly your work that I will leave to the lawyers. Fair enough. It will be really interesting to see how those things play out in court. Um, But I guess shifting to another topic altogether, we are recording this late in December and this episode is going to come out first thing in the new year in 2024. So we at Breaking Views have been doing a lot of predictions and putting out our hot takes as to what we think is going to happen next year. I'd love to hear if you have any uh, predictions or surprises or anything that you think is going to happen in 2024 in the AI space that people might not be thinking about. Okay. So uh, first, Happy New Year uh, to to everyone listening. (laughs) Yes, Happy New Year. um, I think we're going to see a continued acceleration in the underlying progress of AI. I can't predict what that means in terms of market adoption, as in I can't predict if there's going to be a, a continued rapid increase in enterprise spend or a pullback, because that kind of depends on the macro, and that also isn't something that I'm going to comment on. But underlying all of that, there's so much enthusiasm around people building an AI that we're going to continue to see algorithmic process. That's going to really help on the cost side of what you talked about, Anita. It's also going to help because we're going to start to have models that are cheaper, both closed source, like ChatGPT4, or rather uh, GPT4, and also in the open source. We tend to see a lot more progress in open source in the the latter half of of this year. I think we're going to continue to see progress there. What that's going to allow is price competition, of course, but also enterprises actually making AI their own moving from experimentation and into production, that transition, Anita, is going to be messy. It's actually being defined as we go. We're, we're quite literally in the forefront of how enterprises are adopting it. In the immediate term, I see kind of a progression of how these companies adopt it. 
first, specific business functions are going to be adopting AI and saying, hey, how do we use AI to get more work done faster and achieve more OKRs, objectives and key results? Then we're going to see a lot of enterprises saying, what if we rethink our product backwards using AI? As in, what's the best experience for a customer? And does that change from our current product now that we have this new technology called uh, accessible AI and LLMs? So we might even see new user interfaces. I think chat is an interim interface. We might see a lot of it in 2024, but I still think it's interim. I actually think in the future it will be full recommendations and anticipating what you want. Um, and then in the far future, this is way past 2024, you know, years out, I think yeah. we'll see entire companies being optimized by AI functioning like a neural network itself. Like having an AI mechanisms. CEO. Maybe, maybe I think humans will still be guiding it, uh, but a lot of the functions will be passing information to each other and people will be acting like nodes in this neural network system. And they'll be the ones having discretion about what information do we continue to pass backwards in the network and what decisions do we allow to pass forward in this network. I guess at the end of the day, we're all just nodes living in the network, you know? That's <laughs> when we look at it. Yeah. Uh, um, this has been a really great conversation, Constantine. Thank you so much for joining me and for sharing all of your thoughts and insights on AI. Very happy to be a node connected to you, Anita, and for the, the friendship and partnership yes. and for all the great reporting at Reuters. Uh, thanks for having me. And to everybody who might be listening, I encourage you guys to be creative about using AI in 2024. I think this is an amazing technology that's best used when it's, it's just embraced as a tool. How can this thing make my life better? The whole purpose of this is to help serve humans so that, uh, so that we're better off and we're able to help other people more. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslik in London. Subscribe to The Exchange on our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can catch up with more of our views at breakingviews.com and on the X social media site, where our handle is at breakingviews. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.